I think if you stay authentic and true to what you believe and how you believe it and that who your core values are and what you say they are is how you back them up. I think that that's what helps you get through every day. Welcome to the business of doing business. I'm your host, Dwayne Kerrigan. With 35 years in business and close to 30 ventures across 12 industries, I've seen a lot. Amid the celebrity allure of entrepreneurship, many exceptional entrepreneurs remain shadowed. Here, I team up with these hidden talents to unveil their challenges and successes. Dive in with me to unearth entrepreneurial gems, learn from our experiences, and get educated. Kim Naylor, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Appreciate you coming into the studio. I've been super excited about chatting with you. We know each other for a few years. You know my wife really well. Not the first time we met, but like, Recently, just hearing your story, and I was when I was so captivated by pieces of your story. Maybe you could start by sharing with the audience your background and what you're doing, and we'll see where it goes. Sounds good. And thank you so much for having me here. This is very exciting to go back and recreate and start the story all over again. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So, I will tell you just where I started was 1993. So, we're three decades ago, right out of university, had no idea what I was going to do, had my degree, thought I needed to do something that was on my own, thought I was going to be a teacher, and then decided that that was not the right direction for me. So it was really about starting my own business. I did not have a clue what that business was going to look like. So literally, it was just flipping through newspapers and going through magazines, watching what was happening in the environment at that time, and where I thought there could be a need into the type of business I could get into. So I thought event management was a really good place to start and really kind of focusing on corporate and just corporate because that's clearly where the money was. You were in school to become a teacher? I was. How do you go from teacher to, hey, you know what? I'm not going to do this teacher thing. I'm going to become a business person, give up a pension or whatever, or summers off or the the pride of you know educating our children and stuff. And then you're going, now I'm going to just become a business person. Yeah, I totally thought that's really what I wanted to do was teach kids. And my dad was a teacher. So for me, it was just that really clear path I was going to take. I was going to be as great as he was at teaching because he was phenomenal. I was going to be, you know, life changing for those kids because he was. And when I got into that career, I thought it just really wasn't playing off the strengths that I thought that I had. Not that I couldn't be good with kids, (laughs) but it was just more about creating my path, being motivated. I needed to be driven every day on whatever it was that I was doing. And I kind of find that what was happening with teaching is you're motivated and you're driven in a certain way, but it's a very different way. And I needed to have just different goals that I could set every day and set those rules myself. Right. You can't do that when you're teaching because you got a lot of rules you got to follow. Yeah. So was it like a control thing or was it just a freedom thing or what would you say? It, it I think it was just motivating. I'm a very driven person and I needed to be driven. I needed to be motivated. And that for me was not just financially. It was just setting out a goal and achieving it. And I needed that to be on my own terms. And I didn't know what that looked like at the time, but I knew that's what I needed to find. Right. I felt really confident that I could sell whatever it was that I believed in. So I needed to find what it was I thought that I could really take out to market, believe in, and sell and make something of it. And so you jumped into starting your own business in event marketing. I did. I started actually, it was in the sporting world. So it was creating corporate hospitality for major sporting events in Canada. 
So things like the Toronto Indy, Montreal Grand Prix, you know, events that pre-existed, but maybe had a need for bringing in more corporations. Because in 1993, it wasn't the strongest economy that existed, but it was an economy that had tons of opportunity. And the tech industry was huge. So I knew that was a big one that I could basically target and go after and see if we could create some opportunity out of that. And that's where I started. So it was just simply corporate hospitality at major sporting events at the beginning to bring in small groups and see if we were able to sell it and how it went. So you go from wanting to be a teacher, starting your own business, and then going straight to corporate event management. How does that look like that? That seems difficult. You're probably what, early, mid 20s? 24. I think I was 24, 23. So really what I did was I took a little bit of a shortcut because I took a pre-existing concept, which was those sporting events that already existed. You know, there were people who were out there that were trying to do different things for those events from a hospitality level, but I just decided to go straight to the actual event organizers, see if I could take on some of that hospitality and some of that space. And then I purchased it at no deposits. I didn't put any cash down at the beginning because I didn't have a lot. So it was really just coming up with the terms. So it was, when do I need to make the deposit, second payment, third payment? How long do I have? And I better get selling. So it was really going to, for example, like the Montreal Grand Prix and saying, what have you got? Take their space. And then I basically sold them to corporations in smaller packages so that everybody could afford to go and not just really the big Fortune 500s. So you basically go, okay, here's the, whatever the deposit's 10 grand, whatever. Yeah. And you're like, okay, by this date, I got to sell $10,000 worth. And then by the next date, I got to sell 20. And then, yep. Really? That's exactly how it was. Wow. And in the first week of business, and remember back then, all we had was fax machines, fax machines and phones, and it was just cold calling. So it was just picking up the phone, cold calling, sending faxes out. Hopefully some of them would stick. Someone would pick up a fax. And within the first week, I sold my first uh, corporate package. That's insane, really. Like, so you're doing this out of your house, like out of your apartment or something? Out of my apartment. Wow. My two-bedroom apartment, little desk, phone, fax machine, and that was it. That's crazy. All by yourself. You don't have any staff, obviously. You can't afford it, right? Nothing. Not at the beginning. Congratulations. I did, I, <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Now, fast forward that. We're, then what's the next step? The next step is now we have acquired a few different clients and it's doing well and it's taking off. And I always knew that I was quite good at being able to sell what it was I was doing, but I did not ever think that I would be the person that could organize and put together the best event. So I knew I needed to start bringing in at least one or two people that could start being organized and do the actual planning of the event. So that's what I did. So I hired my first person right away so that they could get in and for those hospitality events that we were running that they would then start putting food and beverage together, who sits where, invitations, all the pieces that needed to go together for all the corporations onto how they were going to run those events for their clients or their salespeople. So earlier you actually mentioned was tech uh, like the big portion of your business or not? They were at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And then in 99, obviously the tech bubble blows. What happens there? I'm well, luckily by 1999, I'd had a bunch of other clients in my portfolio that could balance off and, and we never lost the tech industry. It was just a big downturn. So it was definitely for those where they're doing the big elaborate events and maybe they're doing 50 or 60 of them. Now we have to really create the best opportunity for them in maybe six to eight events and not as many people, but still run them manually and make sure that we understand what their corporate objectives are, what they need to achieve and put those events together for them. And then on the flip side, make sure that our portfolio was big enough that we had other organizations in there too. Was that a conscious decision or was it just like you were 
trying to fish in as many ponds as possible? Both. It was definitely fish in every pond we possibly can and any bit of business out there, let's take it and let's go after it. But then the strategic side was, okay, who has the most money? Who can we go after that can really help balance out where we are, whether that was automotive, pharmaceutical, tech, whatever existed, and then try to balance out what it was that we did. <laughs> That's so cool. I didn't realize it was that. I actually thought you started corporately in event management and then just kind of peeled out. So how, fast forward this, where does it go next? So then we were growing and growing and obviously went from my apartment into the first office space. Then we outgrew that office space, went to the next office space. And then in 2001, I'd been approached by a couple of different people to see if I had considered selling the business and what I look to possibly grow, merge with somebody else, be acquired by somebody else. So that sort of started my thought process there. And by 2002, I sold the organization to a much larger organization. Um, but not with the intent of an exit strategy. It was definitely with the intent of growth. Let's take this to the next level and really see where we can go. So I sold it to a marketing company so that basically the events and incentive side would be a division of the marketing umbrella, but that I would then go in as a senior executive to help grow the entire organization. And then at this time, this is 03, are you a mom yet? So 2002, in the middle of the acquisition, I found out I was pregnant. So I, of course, had to let the board members know before the acquisition was complete that I was pregnant. So that was, it definitely threw a bit of a, a loop in everybody's agenda, but I explained to them that there wouldn't be a maternity leave that I would be taking. I was committed to this path forward that I'd already jumped into and that uh, goodwill, they had to trust that I was going to be there and still work right through it. And I did. And and things went very successfully. Good for you. So I just asked that question, but I'm like, I had no clue you were a mom by that. I know you're a mom. Yeah. Uh, you know, but that's hilarious that I, that's, that's looked like it was a preempted question, but it was not. <laughs> no, it was not. And I remember one of the, uh, one of the board members asked me, he said, you know, how do we know, how do we know you're actually going to work through this and that you're not going to take maternity leave and you can have maternity leave. You're allowed that. But in this situation, that would be detrimental to the business. So how do we know? And I said, well, you don't. <laughs> so you really don't. And I'm perfectly comfortable still staying in the business that I have and moving forward, or we take the leap of faith together and, and go on this next path. But that just has to be, I think, how you feel about the situation. And we move forward. And so he was worried about you taking mat leave? Or so you didn't take a mat leave? I didn't. And, and he knew that if I did, they just didn't know the business well enough to be able to keep it operating. And it is a very client-centric business and the relationships would exist. So, you know, there's so many businesses that are commodity-based. And when they're commodity-based, obviously you're not building the relationships to the same level, but this is a service industry. So an organization. So it was all about relationships and they knew that they needed me to be in there to be able to keep those going. So keep going because... I know the story gets interesting. It does. So jumped into that acquisition, which was a wonderful one. I loved the leader of the organization at that time who was running it. He was wonderful. He had an amazing creative outlook and I, I loved his future looking. So I knew it was going to be a good run. I didn't know how long it was going to be. I had no idea what I was going to do, but we stayed, we worked together and we grew that organization to be a $135 million shopper marketing company within, I think it was three or four years. Wow. Yeah. So we did that through acquisition. We did it through organic growth. We did it through, you know, just us being able to create this umbrella of different divisions that could all fall under to give one sort of offering to every organization that we worked with. 
So how big were you when you sold? So when we sold, I was about 12 million. And I would say that the, actually the organization at the time, because it had done a transfer, it was, it was actually either coming out even or maybe losing a little bit of money. And then, so when I came in, we were making money, we were profitable. And then we grew from there to 135 million. Wow. 10 X. Congratulations. Thanks. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And then through that path, we needed to figure out what was our next step going to be and what was our strategy. Through that process, we went to be publicly traded on the TSX. So we started with Comdex, went to the TSX. We were publicly traded and it was, it was successful, but it was challenging because again, as a service industry, it's much harder to show that tangible kind of need for the organization or for the stock, for the share. So we decided that we were then going to go from being publicly traded to being private. So we then decided what that path was going to look like. And we went out to market and we, oh my gosh, I think we did something like 40 or 50 different pitches pitches, and meeting with people and all the, all the different things you have to do to go through that kind of acquisition. But we did end up selling to a private equity firm out of Manhattan. And it came down, not everybody that we were meeting with that kind of made the top five. I think there were only two that were private equity firms and the rest were different organizations that we would have joined to make a larger conglomerate. But we ended up going with that route and we went with the private equity firm and that was in 2011. So that acquisition firmed up then. We sold the majority of the business there, but as owners, we all kept a piece. Right. Things started to change. Executives started to change. It's a different beast once you get into that world. It's private equity. Private equity. And it's all about the bottom line. Yep. And it's all about the dollar. And the one thing that we underestimated was that we were very client-centric. So we were all about the client service and making sure that we delivered exactly what we promised and more. So when it started to feel compromised, when it came down to more about being that dollar and that bottom line, it was conflicting for us. So a lot of the major executives had left on their own accord or not. On your side? Yes, on our side. Yep. And then things just started to tumble. And I think that it had a lot to do with just people not understanding the industry that we were in and what it was we were offering and how we were offering it. So this new private equity firm had a tough time with it. And by 2013, there was a whole different, a different kind of behind the scenes that not everybody knew about, including myself. At that point, I had been blocked out quite a bit by many things. And 2013, September 30th, we, the banks closed our doors, called us bankrupt. Now we had declined in revenue, but we were still around 105 million. We were still a very successful, profitable company, but it was more our cash flow and the way that it was being managed, that it wasn't being handled very well by whomever. So just for clarity on that, did the private equity firm go bankrupt? No, they stopped supporting, but they weren't, they were one foot in, one foot out, I would say, but it was the banks. The bank said, here's what we need you to do. And if you're not going to do it, we're out. We're going to shut our doors. So we want more skin in the game out of you guys. You put some money in. We'll put a bit more money in. We'll cover what that cash flow need is. And we're all in it together. And then it became a little bit of a battle. And the battle was lost <laughs> to the banks. Yeah. So the covenants weren't being met. You got it. And then the private equity firm was like, no, we're not putting any. This is outside of our risk portfolio. Yep. And we'd rather just lose what we have invested versus put more in it. And I think the banks decided to match that offer and say, well, we're not going to put any more in it either then. And we didn't even get a 30-day protection, nothing. 
it was that day. Your doors are going to be locked this afternoon. You guys are done. I was at a meeting that morning. I came in. I was called to the boardroom. There was just six or seven of us executives in the boardroom. The new CEO, who'd only been there for about eight, nine months, and he just looked at us across the table and said, uh, as of today, we are now officially bankrupt and our doors will be closed. We're like, what? <laughs> and you guys had no idea this was coming. No idea. No idea. The thing that I thought was that we would probably going in the direction of another acquisition. So we would probably either sell as an entire organization, or maybe we would break off some of the divisions and sell to two or three different organizations because we had people who were very interested in buying different pieces of the business. Never, ever did I think that those doors would be shutting and that that would be the end of us. It's crazy that they wouldn't even try to sell it. And there were buyers. There were buy there were interested buyers, that there was a path there that could have been taken. I think the fight became a little bit more of the focus and September 30th, 2013, those doors shut. And that was that. It's the the pros and cons of taking money. Yeah. Right? When you start playing with private equity. Yeah, it was a tough route to go. It's, it is baffling to me how they just kind of walk away. Like to me, it was like selling pieces off would have made sense. But, mm-hmm. but for private equity, they just, they have their, their numbers and they get some guy sitting there with a calculator and says, hey, this is what we do. And I kind of feel like maybe they were sitting there a little out of their league. They didn't know our industry well. Maybe they didn't know how achievable it was to go that route. I, I can't speak for them on that one. That would only be a guess of mine. but. They weren't calling in the right people at the right time to have the right discussions. That I know for sure. Did you have any relationship with the private equity firm? Like I did. I mean, I was definitely from the, I would say the new CEO, I was being blocked out more than I should have been since I was one of the most senior executives there. The private equity firm was, they were in Manhattan. They kind of, I think, just entrusted things to happen that were going to happen on this side. They worked very closely with the CEO. They occasionally would check in with me. They were very respectful of me. They, it wasn't like they were trying to push me out, but I do think that they just wanted to kind of figure things out before they called me in for anything. Yeah. So the doors get shut that day. Yeah. This is where like. Things go crazy. Yeah. This is where it's like insane. Yeah. They shut the door. They say, that's the end of you. Everybody go home. Uh, The CEO said, I'll be sending a note out to let all clients, people who work here, staff, anybody they're going to know that we're done, that the doors are shut and that's, they're going to receive an email and that's how they're going to find out. Well, they're also going to find out when they're stuck wherever they are and whatever event they're at. I had three flights in the air for three programs taking place at that time. And it was, and they were all, one of them was in the country, but on the West coast and the other two were outside of the country. And they were literally going to land and get off a plane and see an email that said, well, by the way, the company that's doing your event, they no longer exist. (laughs) So all the deposits at hotel, like how does that, how does that work? That's where things got a little fearful. So I immediately jumped in and said, you know, you've got about 30 seconds to decide, do you walk out on this, take an early retirement or maybe a year off, or do you jump in and figure out how to keep this business going? Because you've got a lot of clients that are going to suffer if you don't. So I think my mind was made up by the relationships and the commitment that I have to my clients and my staff, because there was no hesitation. It was, we move forward and we figure it out, but I'm going to start a new company that's going to handle all this. But my priority is I need to call all the clients, particularly the ones who are in the air and make sure I get in in touch with all the presidents and CEOs of those companies and let them know. I don't know what the financial state is right now of those events, but I will ensure that they happen 
that they will take place, that I will foot the bill if I have to foot the bill, that my people will be paid who are on the ground or about to land and be on the ground to run those events and just not to worry. But your place is shut down. Like like anybody who's been through this before, uh, I've not been through it myself, but I've worked with people who have. And I mean, they just, they lock the doors, they shut it down. They, you pack your box, you have 15 minutes to pack your boxes and you get out basically or whatever the time frame is. So all chaos broke loose. It was literally like, like looting took place. People just thought, oh my God, I have to salvage whatever I can. It got insane. But what I did was I went to the event, the incentive side, and I said, I need everybody to get down to, there was this small little room that we had in the corner in the back. And I was pretty sure we could hide away there for a little bit. So I had everybody come in there and I, I, I told them I, the same way I just found out is the same way they found out. I said, here's what's happening. And the doors are going to shut. And I have every intention of keeping this company going and keeping everything going for our clients. I understand this is a really tough spot for you, but I need to know who's in, who's at least in with me for now. And I'll ensure that you're taken care of. And then we can figure out what the long-term plan is. But if you're in with me and you're in to make sure that our clients don't get poorly affected, then here's what we need to do. And we need to basically lock ourselves in this room at least as long as we can for the end of this day. And then I'll figure out where we meet tomorrow and continue to help everybody and make sure that this planning still continues. It's crazy. How many people stayed? What percent? The beginning, 80%. That's really high. 80%, it was very high. Everybody was there. They were so committed. They were like, we're going to do whatever it takes. What do you need us to do? We're on it. We'll do it. The first thing was just started calling the clients of the events that were taking place in the air. So I got in touch with those three organizations. I got in touch with the three presidents right away. They took my call immediately. I explained to them what was happening and I got to each of them before they saw any email or anything went out. I did ask that CEO, just give me 20 minutes, give me 20 minutes before that email goes out. And I just didn't want there to be panic or shock. Right. So I was able to get in touch with all of them. And without hesitation, they all were like, okay, you do what you have to do. You let us know what you need us to do. And we trust you go. So that is what we did. And it was probably about four o'clock. I didn't even know who they were, but they found us in that back little office. <laughs> and uh, and the first time we were found, they came in and they said, you know, you guys can't be here. You're going to have to go. And we said, no, we are. We're just totally wrapping up. We're, we're ensuring that clients are at least not going to be in any sort of detrimental state. So let us finish up and we'll get out of here. And then I think the next time we saw it was two or three suits came into that back room and it was probably about eight o'clock at night. And they were like, what? You can't be here. What are you doing here? And you have to leave. So everybody kind of scooted at that point, but at least we had a plan that the next day we're going to meet at my house. We'll meet at my house and, and just keep creating a plan. So we got out of there, but we were literally escorted out of the building at that point. And the good news was we'd been in touch with pretty much every single one of our clients and the events were taking place. There were dinners happening, planes landing, hotels letting people in, getting them to their rooms. And there were absolutely no disruptions whatsoever. But what we did find out that there were a lot of deposits not made. So there was a lot of outstanding costs that still needed to be made. So I knew it was going to be a tough financial road. Oh, so like deposits on hotels yeah. from other events or the events going on? The events going on, those three. So the company had never sent out deposits? No. Oh. no. Some were made. There were some, but there were many that weren't. So we knew that from a financial standpoint, there was going to be a lot to take on. But the good thing is the way I've always run the business is it's pretty much, you know, a chunk of money up front, but then there's always a chunk that we hold back for after the event. 
and then we will invoice after the event. So I knew we had that piece that we hadn't invoiced all the clients yet. So that was at least money that we could work with. And then a lot of the other financial pieces, we just, I just had to take that risk and make those payments. We did a pretty good job considering what was out there. So we, we made it through and we got it through and all the clients knew that we did that and they were really supportive and came into full partnership too. So places that they could come in and find extra money, they did. It's a crazy, crazy story. Yeah. So then you start your company, which is called? Phoenix Event Management. Yeah. So, is, so out of the ashes. Out of the ashes. And it was actually a friend of mine, but who was also somebody that I do business with. And he said, you know, I was talking to him on the phone. He said, I, I can't believe what, you know, you've just pulled off in the last few days. It's amazing. And he said, honestly, he said, this next company you're doing, you need to call it Phoenix. He said, you guys just rising from the ashes out of this one. So he really gets credit for the name. And then uh, we just wanted to make sure that we had a different spelling of it. We went with a different derivative. We didn't go with PH or F-E-N-I-X. So the Latin terminology, I believe. It's an insane story. Like, I mean, but I think what's crazy, which is, I think, more or more authentic. It's not crazy. It's like authentic. It's who you are is like, I'm real curious about in that moment, you know, you're told by the CEO, like what's going through your mind and not on the transactional level, but like on the inside Kim nail or where's your head at? Where's your, where are your emotions at? It was a whirlwind. And I don't really think I took the time to think about emotionally where I was at. Like I remember sitting at the, the board table and I remember the CEO had tears rolling down his cheeks which just kind of made me angry. I, I was just like, well, how, why are you crying? Yeah, and, and maybe he had that right to cry, but that was my feeling in that moment. And I just felt like there's so many people who are going to be so negatively affected by this, like so many people losing their jobs. So many of our partners who trusted us that are potentially going to lose a lot of money and a lot of trust. And, you know, what that's going to do with them even making business decisions, you know, moving forward. There was a lot of negative that I saw that from what was happening because of us that was going to happen that I thought more about in that moment. I thought more about everyone else than I did where I was at. And again, just always being so focused and committed to the clients and staff. That was just where my head needed to go and my heart. Uh, and then when I got home that night, my two kids who were both waiting up for me. 2013. So I had a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. And the 7-year-old was jumping up and down on the couch when I walked in and she was so excited. And she was like, "Mommy's home, Mommy's home and she never has to leave again. <laughs> She's home for good." So uh their dad had explained to them oh. what had happened and that uh, I was probably going to be a little stressed and to, you know, go easy on me. So anyway, my daughter was so thrilled and excited. So Jamie was leaping all over the place. And then my son looked at Jamie and he said, you know, you can't be excited. He said, you don't understand what this means. He said, mommy doesn't have a job anymore. He said, we might have to move and probably live in a tent and we don't even know if we have food. <laughs> <laughs> so I had like one extreme to the next and I'm dealing with the two of them. And that's probably where for the first time I felt like, what are we going to do? Like, what does this really look like? Like, this was such a spontaneous what I had to do now, but it's not necessarily what I have to do for the next 10, 20, 30 years. So I better figure that out. And that was probably where I really took that first moment to think about it. And it was very clear. So we just 
there's still a lot of staff that they needed to keep their jobs. There's still a lot of clients that are entrusting us. And I took on this new organization we were going forward with. And two of the uh, women who have worked with me for 20, 25 years came on as partners with me as well. And so we are the three women who went out to figure out how to pull this forward. And that's what we did. So really the next, with, by October 10th, so 10 days later, we had our office space. We had our corporate name. We'd been in touch with all the clients. Everything was done. Things were starting to roll. And then really within 30 days, we had re-signed all but one of our corporate clients that we had. Everybody stayed with us except for one. Wow. Yeah. And the one who didn't stay with us at that point, they had a lot of process issues and a lot of corporate things that they needed to follow. And so that they still kept in communication with us, but that was a harder one. And all the other clients stayed with us. Congratulations. It was amazing. We were very, very blessed to have those clients. So you have made, so I'm just like tracking this conversation that we've been on for the last 20 or 30 minutes, but it's like, so you come out of university wanting to be a teacher, decide to be a business person, which I still have a couple of questions about. <laughs> then you decide to sell your business to a larger corporation emerge, and then you grow it 10x. Then you go public, then reverse public. Then you go through this, and then you decide to, you know, not take mat leave. You know, some big, big decisions. Yeah. It seems like they're all kind of decisions made from a place of real authenticity. And I'm just curious, like, where is that founded for you? I would definitely say right back to the first decision of thinking that I was going to be a teacher was because of the values I was taught by my dad and my mom and dad, but my dad was everything to me. And I was brought up that money will make your life easier, but it doesn't matter. And I've definitely lived my life that way. And I've had successes, which I'm truly blessed and happy with, but I have never, ever, ever made a choice because of money over people or anything else. And I never will. And that definitely stems from what I was taught. From dad. Yep. Yep. And my mom too. My mom was very different. She was a little eccentric, but she was all about that too. You know, my mom was that woman that if you were in a restaurant and you told her that you, you know, you loved her bracelet, I promise you that bracelet was going to be on your wrist within, you know, 10 to 15 minutes because to her, it was just an object, but to you, it meant something and you loved it. So she would give you that bracelet. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it was both of them that definitely taught me that. Yeah. That sums you up pretty good, actually. <laughs> You're one of the most giving people I know. Oh, thank you. I'm amazed at how you have led, you know, in these instances that you've described, and I have the privilege of knowing you, so I'm able to come from a little bit of a different place of understanding, but you lead from a very authentic sincere, but I would also highlight feminine energy that is just, to me, super powerful. Thank you. And I'm curious, like, how do you maintain that with all this, you know, like, I mean, even in the story, like, how do you maintain that shit? It's not always easy. I think that some people would look at me with some of the decisions I've made and said, they're not good business decisions because I do lead with my heart. And I do sometimes make decisions from the heart that aren't always what, you know, your typical strong business person might do, but they've always worked out. And I think that when you truly care about people and you truly care about the outcome and you put that first, the right thing will 
eventually come. There'll be some rocky roads and there'll be some rough spots. It's not perfect, but it's just the way that I chose to lead and I don't regret anything. So it hasn't been perfect. There's definitely been moments, but I I think that through that, it's just led to good decisions and good outcomes. And I know obviously your dad was a strong influence in regards to how you formulate your values, but how you make strategic and even day-to-day decisions in business, it's tough to do. Like you you just use the word strong, like a strong leader, but I would kind of challenge that concept that, you know, so many people that think that strength is masculine or aggression. I don't subscribe to that. I, I think that, I actually think that women, I think the feminine energy is the strongest energy. And I'm just, I'm curious, like on the day-to-day side of things, how do you manage to not veer off the path? Like, did you have mentorship? Did you have coaching? Did you, how did you center yourself? You can lose your value. And I don't want to say you're going to lose your values, but you can, you can over time change your method of decision-making and strategy in order to get your outcome which, you know, running a successful business or running a profitable business or whatever, which I'm sure you do. And you're aware of all those things, but how do you stay the course over what's it been? 25 years, 30 years this year, 30 years, 30 years. I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it when you said authenticity. I think if you truly, truly stay true to yourself and I'm not trying to sound like you know, a big sort of meditative guru or anything like that. I truly mean it. I think if you stay authentic and true to what you believe and how you believe it and that who your core values are and what you say they are is how you back them up. I think that that's what helps you get through every day. And like I said, not with perfection. You know, there's lots of mistakes that come through, but I think when you really just trust who you are, what you know, and how you think, then you, you put those solutions together and you trust that those solutions are the right ones. Through those 30 years, we've had a path of major, I mean, I'll call them disruptions, but some were tragedies and some were major crisis. But, you know, from going into 9-11, when I, I'm in the travel industry and all of a sudden planes are literally grounded and so many lives were lost and it was such an emotional time. But it was a time that you still had to get your business to survive through somehow and to figure out what that future, that path was going to look like. And you can't do that in some of those situations with knowledge because it didn't happen before. Like you just don't know. So you have to go with what you believe and where your brain sits and ties up with your emotion and your solutions and your decision-making. And then you come out at the end and hope it was the right stuff. So how did you do 9-11? What did you do there? So I think what I've always done since the, the day I've run this business, I've always had a backup plan. And that backup plan has to do with finances. If something happens, what's the plan and how do we get through the next six to 12 months, assuming your doors are shut and there's no more sales coming in, no, no more business coming in. So how do, you, how do you support that and how do you back that up? I always had a plan and there was always a plan A, B, and C for every situation, not even knowing what the situations would be. So when 9-11 hit, it was really just, okay, financially, we know we're going to be okay and we're going to get through this. But emotionally, we needed to make sure that we were there for our clients also who were very afraid. You know, there was a lot of fear that was going out into a lot of different places. 
And then it was the thought process of, is anybody ever going to get back on a plane? And what do we do or how do we, you know, overcome their fears and what's the right time? So it was really having those strategic discussions with all of our clients to figure out what was right for them and why it was right and how it was right. And really, it was also collecting a lot of information, a lot of data, a lot of truths that were out there so that we could put people's minds at ease that this wasn't something that looked to be happening every every month, year, two years. Can you just walk me through a, like a couple of things? One, do you have a strategy around keeping a certain amount of money in the in, in the bank to make sure that, you know, if you go to zero yeah. in revenue that you're always going to have X percent kind of cut away. So yeah. is that a, you know, six month runway? Is it a 12 month runway? What do you, do you have an actual strategy around that? It is. It's a 12 month runway, but it's also the way we base it off of, or that I've always, I started the business from day one was cash flow, how I collect the money, when I collect the money. Um, that it's not always all in my hands. The money comes in as the money goes out and then some stays in and then there's always some that are coming on the back end. But there's enough that I, I strategically place what goes where at what point and enough to kind of operate the business. I always make sure that there's a pocket of funds that are, if we ever need them, they're in the background. And I have a line of credit. We've never, ever had a dollar of debt. But I have a pretty good line of credit that we've never used. But if we need it, it's there and that will get us through a certain amount of time. And in the case of this last crisis we had through COVID, we actually owned uh, a condo that we'd converted into office space. And through that, we were able to sell that and, and collect some more revenue that could help us through a tough time that was much longer than one year, as everybody knows. Mm -hmm. I feel like some people who would be listening would be going, a year's worth of runway? like." That's a big nut for a lot of businesses, mm -hmm. whether you're a small business or it's all relative, right? I can honestly say, I don't think we have a, you know, we don't have a year of revenue or profit. 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 So that's a big commitment mm -hmm. from an operational standpoint. Mm -hmm. And is that just discipline? It's discipline, but it's also some people are a lot more risk, you know, risk taking than I am. I'm a little more cautious, a little more risk averse. So. Oh, you seem real risk adverse that, with everything you've done. <laughs> so I, I do feel that. <laughs> That's amazing how you frame that. That's awesome. It's just, you just have that. You have to make sure everyone else is protected. <laughs> right. Always run that way. And it's, like I said, when you look at all the different areas, you know, you have the 2008 crash, you have, like I said, the 9-11, you have COVID. We've had so many different areas of where crisis management has been needed. And because of the plan A, B, and C, we've been able to make it through. And then also through tenacity and hard work. And, you know, there is a team of people through COVID that jumped in and were willing to do whatever it took to keep that business running. And we had to obviously create new offerings. There was no events happening for about three years, but the business still needed to exist. So how are we going to do that? And we did. And we could not have done that without the team of people that we had and the financial support and backing that existed. I'm going to get back to that. but. So A, plan A is money in the bank. Plan B? So money in the bank of your own and line of credit, everything else. Plan B is figuring out what exists outside of there. So what government programs are there? Are there any um, subsidies? Are there any, you know, anything that we could tap into financially if we need to, to get us through another six months if needed? Uh, obviously for COVID, we saw big ones come through, but 
prior to that. None of those existed. So it was really finding out what is there. So when COVID happened, we set up a plan in January and had it completely solidified by the end of January. So if anything happened, our plan was set. We had the plan and we knew exactly what we had to do, when we had to do it and how we were going to do it. And then when March 26th came in and hit us, the how changed a little bit, but at least the what and when we were able to to back up on right away. So that was that was a good thing for us. Not a lot of people can say that. No, a lot of companies went under a lot, especially in our industry. They they didn't make it because they didn't know how to get through it. But we we literally put ourselves in a position where it was like the switch. The switch went on and we were ready to go into the next chapter of the Phoenix life. <laughs> so like you had the crisis management plan already in place. We did. Yeah, we fully did. Now it changed and it altered because as we saw, there were government programs that came in that were able to support us when we needed and that helped us a lot. But when those didn't exist, we did find that there were other programs that existed that still exist. And that's for companies that do need, if any small businesses run into any kind of trouble, there is some, you know, sort of insurance that you can step into that the government will help you to get through things. And you just, you know, you abide by what those terms look like. And then at the end of the day, you can get yourself through a tough spot. And then plan C? So plan C was really a combination of everything. And it was doomsday, worst case scenario. What do we do? We never think that's going to happen. But if it does, what are we ready for? And it was like literally people, if they're not coming into the office, you know, do we have everybody equipped and set up to be at home working? And do we have everything set up with the bank? Do we have everything set up with the government issues? Do we have, we had people sign forms that really would have had us been able to submit that into any kind of government support that we needed so that it was that day, it was, you know, done and ready to go. So plan C was the combination of everything. Like levels of escalation, yeah. right? Depending on how big it is. Yep. Obviously I'll ask the question, but, and it's a hard one to answer, but that includes like level of escalation is like, Hey, I've got hundred people working for me and the reality is tomorrow I'm going to have 50 or 20 sometimes. And for sure, that's what we wanted to avoid. But through that plan, what we wanted to look at was who do we see as high risk day to day? Or is there anybody? Is there anyone in the organization that, you know, that we think might be? Is there anyone in the organization that we could see might need to be areas that we need to cut or have to cut or lay off or temporarily or whichever? And what we very easily came up with in that short time was we didn't want to let anybody go. So our our decision was how do we keep everybody working and everybody paid and everybody. And the only way to do that was to have 100% of the organization agree to the financial terms that we were looking at. Because at the very beginning, it was everybody had to take a bit of a hit, a bit of a decrease. And in order to do that, if they could do that, not for the first three months, but if it came into the second three months and we had to do that, did everybody agree to do that? And everybody agreed to do that. And they all signed off on it. And so luckily we didn't have to keep that going. And, and we were able to get them and keep them operating. This is one of the things that I love about what I'm hearing is, well, everybody's decided to take the pay cut. Uh, everybody jumped on board when, or 80% of the people jumped on board when, you know, they shut the company down originally and then you created Phoenix. And then everybody's jumping on board. You've I've probably said it three or four times so far in this interview, which is, you know, to me, a testament of your leadership. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Especially when we started Phoenix, one of the things that, so culture is very important to me and it always has been. 
And it's not just all about the clients. I mean, I'm very much client first, but I'm very much our people first also. So I want to ensure that we feel like a family. You know, we're a small business, so it's a Phoenix family. How do we all look out for each other and make sure that we're all out for each other and have a trust for each other? Because that's something fortunate we're able to do as a small business. Obviously, larger companies, publicly traded companies, uh, they're not able to do as easily. But you can do that when you make those strategic choices to operate at the level that we do. So it was super important. And I think that because of how we treat them and they treat us, it truly is a family. And it's a give and take. And, and again, it wasn't perfect. There was a couple of people that, you know, that sat in there, didn't have the same feelings or philosophy or, you know, felt that that culture was treating them fairly. I guess, you know, you can't please everybody all the time, but the general feeling and culture maintained itself and our, our people got us through it. For you, what, what was culture for you? Like what, what did it represent for you, the business? Yeah. Number one is trust. It's, it's trust. We have to trust each other. I don't expect perfection. Nobody's going to be able to operate perfectly. And we are in an industry where it comes down to human error or human success. So I don't want to punish anyone for any kind of human error, but we are going to celebrate the successes for all the human success. And I think this industry, you work hard. It's, it's not an easy job. It's got Sort of one of the benefits that's great about it is when you run an event and you do an event and then you complete an event. So when you complete an event, you can see its success. You can see how great it went. It was all about fun. It was all about, you know, motivation and drive and so many great things. And you can feel that. So you get like, I, I find people go through big emotional roller coasters. You know, you go from this low, low and stress to this high, high of being able to celebrate your success, which you can't do in every industry. So that really exists. And I think that people are able to go through that kind of roller coaster in our business too, which is sometimes you're working really, really hard and really long hours. And then other times it lightens up a little bit and you can enjoy the time. And we're going to make sure that we're celebrating you and that, you know, you get a chance to celebrate your successes as well. Let me ask you, so I have this saying, like, it's easy to sail a ship in calm waters. So you have a, you know, the great event, you know, the, the great staff, the A team, the this, the that, the you know, it's in a great environment, whatever, but when it gets rocky, when it's a tough one, when it's a, you know, a tough event or a, maybe I don't want to use the word failed event, but an event that certainly didn't go as planned or by the expectation of the customer or whatever, how do you deal with that within the culture? Like what, what does that look like? To be honest, I think that's where our organization excels. I really do. I think, like I said, we're talking about that we're all humans that can't be perfect, but we're also the business that we have is we are literally a company that brings a whole bunch of third-party pieces together to create one entity, one, one program, one experience. And so we're at the mercy of a lot of other people, whether it be airlines, restaurants, hotels, activities, whatever it is, creative, AV, you know, things that can go wrong that we have zero control over. So it's really- it's Probably about 80% of your business, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I always say to everyone, because you know, people who, who work for Phoenix, it can be really frustrating and it can be really tough. And it's hard for them to not take it as a personal feeling like, oh my God, the airline just canceled all flights going out that day. And now we, we have to leave a different day. And, you know, the first thing is that that is out of our control. 
So we, we can't stress or freak out about it. But what we can do is dive deeper and see if there's another solution that exists. We don't just have to give what they're giving us. So if that's not working, let's dig deeper, see what else exists in that, in that world. So what flights can, are going out that day? What airline is it? What are they leaving from? And let's jump in and see what those solutions are. And the number one thing always is don't ever go to one of our clients and say, we can't do this or this happened. It has to be, okay, unfortunately, this is what's come to our attention. However, we have these solutions that will combat the problem, everything. And that's, I think that's the one thing that I would say we are really good at. We are very good problem solvers. We're really good with coming up with solutions. We dig deep. And uh, like I said, we're at the mercy of a lot of other people, but we don't, we don't just take what we're given. We're going to keep looking and we're going to find the best solution that exists. And we do. And I always say when, 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 you know, the people get a little bit down on themselves or frustrated or whatever it is they feel, they all have to remember if these things didn't happen and if we weren't so good at fixing them, well, people wouldn't really need us. They Mm -hmm. would just do it themselves, you know, but they don't do it themselves because so many things can go wrong and do go wrong. And it's, it's our job to fix it. Yeah. How do you foster that type of decision-making or leadership or sense of calm or direction inside the organization staying calm for sure um and and not no blame it's it's not about blame for anyone or anything or like i said we expect imperfections it happens so let's fix it and i don't want you to fix it by yourself because sometimes when you know you're in the middle of a challenge or you're in the middle of an issue your head doesn't quite see everything that it needs to see and you're not seeing as clearly pull people in you know, you need to escalate it. You need to bring us in and we're going to create it together. And it is never going to be with blame, with any fear or any, or any anger. It's, we're just going to work it through and that's what we'll do. Right. And so I don't feel that there's ever been a challenge that has arisen that hasn't been brought to our attention and something that we could work through and fix. How does Kim have to show up and where does she have to show up and how often or when would be the critical times that you have to show up in a way that's like really driving that where the, and this is not like you are obviously have a skill set that not everybody has. So you, you're going to, they're going to rely on you in certain situations or, you know, and, and sometimes they're common situations. So where are those and how does Kim deal with them? I think a big one is problem solving. I think that the number one thing is, come to me with the challenge, whatever the problem is, whatever the issue is. And all of us, I I expect that from everybody to stay calm and for everybody to just think through it. Um, But the same thing that I say that we do for our clients, I also expect from the planners or who's ever working on anything, don't just come to me with a problem, come to me with what you think the solution is. Like I want people to think things through. I want them to feel empowered to, to come up with their own ideas and their own solutions. And then together, we're going to work them through. So I don't want those problems going to the client without it coming to me and without us going through it. And, and I do feel that that's where I need to be is, uh, is on that solution side, because that's very often. So do you get involved in 80, 90, 60% of the problems? I guess it depends on how big they are. Of the solutions, yes. And depending on the size. Like as far as the planning goes, that is not like that's that's what they're great at and that's what they do and they do it very well. So this is more just, again, with issues running the business obviously is where I sit. 
Um, so making sure that we're financially okay, the relationships with the clients, the strategic aspect of the business and the strategic aspect of the programs is where I will sit and live. Right. And then what about like being the mom? Does that show up a lot or is it? Yeah, I think it does. I think it does a little bit. I think if not the mom, do you mean the mom to my staff or the mom to my kids? Yeah, no, the, mo- <laughs> the mom to your staff. Yeah, I think they know. I think they truly know I have an open door and that I'm there for them and that I exude. I don't just, you know, say things. I don't just have words. I talk the talk and I, and I talk the walk and walk the talks. <laughs> So I make sure that I always practice what I preach and, and I live by it with them. So I put the, I put the same expectations, if not more on myself that I do on everyone else. Uh, and it's, and it's in a understanding, compassionate way every time. Okay. Almost every time. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So on the almost, yeah, almost times, <laughs> like what's Kim's biggest struggle? Where does it go off the rails for you? Well, I'm not a very patient person. So I'm, I'm not, I, I try to act like I am, but it is probably the thing I struggle with the most. So when I want things done, I want them done now and I want to go and I, let's get to the next thing and what we need to do. So I need to pull back on that and that, uh, that my time isn't the exact same timeline as everybody else's. So I work on that. I, I literally talk to myself <laughs> often in a day to just count to 10 and, and do that and not, and not have those levels of impatience come out as frustration or intolerance because that would be awful. So I really try to work on that, but I do know that those, those moments can slip through. I never would have thought that, that patience is your, that's your, is that your, like, would you say your biggest saboteur or? Yeah. My kids will tell you that too. <laughs> Yeah. And so, cause it's interesting. Cause I would say that's probably mine like as well. I would, you know, for me, it's maybe patience around people making mistakes. Like, and you say, like you talked about that inner voice, like I have an inner voice that always starts with the fuck. <laughs> I've heard that Are voice. You serious? <laughs> and then you're like, Hey, I can't lose my mind. What's your self-talk? Oh my God, I self-talk so much. Sometimes I think it's a bit of a problem, but (laughs) it's working for me. So I'll just keep doing it. I have, like I said, the two partners I work with, Janet and Lisa, who are amazing and they're wonderful, but sometimes your expectations go a little bit higher. So I have to, I have to, again, remember, we're just all humans and they're exceptional at what they do, but at the same hand, they're humans too. So like, let's just all take a breather and step back. But I think it can sometimes come out in a level of what you're saying, like that sort of intolerance. I hate if it comes out like intolerance because it's not what I I mean it to be. You know, I don't expect everybody to think the way I think or be the way I am. Just like I don't want them to expect that for me. You know, but one of my, one of the things I always say is with with our staff, with our people, with whoever we're working with, nobody is showing up and wanting to make mistakes. Nobody is there. And, and doing anything purposefully to hurt you or the business or the client or anything. So that's the first thing to remember. And, and ultimately, if somebody's in a role, if somebody's in a job that isn't working for them, if they're not, they're not really good at it, then likely they're not feeling very good about themselves either. So it's not going to be good for anybody. And then that's a real, okay, let's sit down and have a big talk here. And, and what's the best direction moving forward? But it's not up to any of us to make you feel less than who you are 
because you're not operating at a level that we think you should be. So I think that's the most important thing is just getting your head in a grip and just saying, like, nobody's doing anything on purpose. Nobody's doing anything to hurt you. So so take that step back and and reapproach it in a different light. Yeah. I always say that um, nobody wakes up in the morning and puts their two feet in the floor, uh, you know, jumping out of bed and go to, oh, you know what? Today I'm going to do a shitty job. Right. Like nobody does right. that. No. No, no sane person. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there probably are some people too, but- but yeah, I mean, nobody really is shooting to do that, but you know, somewhere between, you know, intention and execution, things go wrong. Absolutely. You know, whether it's, you know, their perception of the facts or whatever it is and and it's our job to lead them, help them with their choices, help them think through their problems and to keep them motivated, keep them stimulated, keep them excited about what the outcome is and 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 to acknowledge our own failures too, you know, sometimes we get so busy in this life that we have and, and so busy, busy doing everything we need to do that we forget. Maybe sometimes some of those issues that have come up are because maybe they weren't coached well in that area, or maybe there was a little bit of training lacking, or, you know, maybe the information wasn't passed to them in the, in the, in the right time frame or the proper process. So that's owned by us. So sometimes it's also just realizing that where where did it start? Where did it kind of fall off the hinge a little bit? Tony Robbins has a, a great saying, or I like the saying anyways, I don't know if it's great, but I really found some some wisdom in it, which is it, trade your expectation for appreciation. Mm. And so often, you know, I will fall into this trap of putting my expectation or my judgment uh, of what should be uh, into the hands of others and, uh, and, you know, rather than just stop and go, okay, wait, you know, there's some appreciation here rather than leading from expectation. So it's the, it's the one thing that tries, I try to talk myself down. I think that's great. I think that's actually summarizes when you were saying, what do I say in my head? I'd say that's kind of a bit of a summary of it. Like, you know, even so much when you go into a retail store and you purchase something and, and maybe the, the person at the cash is going a little slower than you like them to go. And truly, you know, it's like, oh, for God's sakes, like, just hurry. I've got things to do. But you're placing your expectation on them that they need to be at your speed. And sometimes you just have to take that breather and say, you know what? It's okay. They're doing a great job. They're getting me through. And they're not trying to annoy me. This is my problem. Yes, 100%. <laughs> I actually, I have, I had this situation, actually, almost the exact same thing you're talking about happened to me once. We were at a, at a we're flying out of somewhere. And we're in an airline and we're, you know, something happened with the plane. So we're trying to get adjusted and get seats moved and re, re, uh, rebook flight or something like that. The person behind the counter was a little frustrating. I was frustrated. And then I didn't actually take it out on her, but I could feel myself starting to go like I was starting to get pretty wound up. And I said like, okay, wait a second. You know, I am imposing my expectation on her rather than appreciating, you know, the situation. And then it, it, it really led me actually afterwards to give some more deeper thought to it. And actually, Tony actually talks also about this thing called a primary question. And from that one incident, I actually assessed that, you know, I constantly ask myself the question, am I doing this right? Which is what I, I picked that up from like, you know, when I grew up, my parents had this like, you know, there was a certain way to cut the grass. There was a certain way to 
vacuum the floor. There was, you know, there had to be lines and right? it was like, you know, <laughs> all pretty intense <laughs> and uh, as awesome as they, they were as parents, but, you know, but there was always a right way to do things. And so I found that I used to ask myself this primary question is a question that you constantly ask yourself. And I would be asking the, this primary question, am I doing this right? But the, the downside to that question was, I mean, it gave me great results, you know, in business and different areas. But um, the downside to the question is that it presupposes that everything has to be right. And then when things aren't right, I judge people for what my thought or opinion is about what is right or what is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it was an interesting catch for me. And then it was like really instilled that whole piece about, you know, expectation versus appreciation and, you know, not judging and all that kind of stuff. So I'm basically talking about all the voices in my head. I'm, we got a lot of them. So my wife and I, Tanil, we speak often about these voices and, you know, she talks about you know, how many voices a woman has and how many identities a woman has. I'm curious for you, what are the voices? What are the, like, how do you deal with it? Um, because there's, and I've been married before. My ex-wife is like one of our best friends. We have super phenomenal relationship and she took, we've talked to her about this. She's a super feminine woman. You know, it's like these voices can like almost make you crazy mm -hmm. um, because you start with the flipping back and forth and, and the emotion and the, and I'm curious, how, how do you, what does that look like for you? Yeah, because I think the voices set your bar for you too, right? Like when you're constantly hearing these voices, generally, they're taking you down a path that's trying to teach you if the one you're on is the right one. Is it, is it not good enough, but is it the right one? Is it the best one? And so you're constantly questioning yourself within that process. And and I find that's often what my voices will do is make me question myself on so many things. So it's really about landing, finding like when is enough enough? When is it the right solution? When are you at the right place? So I, I find that as a mom, as a friend, as a, as a business owner, as a client, as a supplier, as you know, all those things, constantly questioning if I'm ha not handling them the right way, but am I giving them the best of me that I can give that will hopefully bring out the best of them in that relationship or in that situation? So I think those are, are where the voices can just take over because where and when do you finally land? Because you can keep pushing yourself. You can keep thinking that maybe you need to do more or maybe you didn't do enough or you need to do it differently or you needed to be kinder or you needed to be a little tougher or you needed to be... <laughs> Like, you know, I'm constantly saying, even to the kids, it's like, you know, you go through something with them and you're doing the best job you can do as a parent. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, guys, I, I put funds aside for your therapy session that you may need <laughs> when you're in your twenties or thirties, you can blame me for everything. It's okay, but I got you covered because <laughs> you just know, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to do the best you can do, but it's, it's never going to be perfect. <laughs> well, but so how do you, it's true. I mean, it's so true, eh? But how do you know where to, like you said, well, you got to know where to land. Well, how do you know where to land or where do you, where do you get comfortable with that, that place that you, you know, you have the voices and I'm and confirm or deny whether this, whether I am understanding this properly, but 
you have these voices and there's lots of push pull and you know, what do they need? What do I need? What should I do? What are my obligations? What are my commitments? You know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and you have these constant conversations with yourself, probably from different perspectives or different identities, if you will, like, you know, from a mom, from a wife, husband, whatever, boyfriend, girlfriend, community, employer, human. And so you're, you know, coming at it from all these different angles. A, what did it look like when you were younger and not as experienced? And then what did that, tra- how did that transition? How did it change? How did you develop? And then how do you, where you land to this point where you, I mean, I see you as very, you know, put together, very, you know, composed. I don't want to, I certainly don't want to use the word mature, but you're, you're just polished and confident and, it's it's amazing. Tanil and I talk about it all the time. So I'm just curious what that development looked like for you. Thank you. Well, I think again, just through one of the things you just said is what it looked like when you were younger. And when you're younger, often we don't talk to ourselves and we don't know to do that. So we look at our peers, we look at our parents, we look at our siblings, we, you know, you kind of look around you and you get through it the best you can from your learnings at a young age. And then I think the really important thing is the day when you figure out when your peers and your parents and your teachers and whoever's in your life are telling you things and, and you hear common messages about what they're telling you, you have to be open to listening. And I think if you can start listening to some of the attributes that they say you have that aren't always the most positive ones, it. It's not always just okay to accept them. It's not okay to say, well, that's just who I am. I think it's about internalizing it and saying, okay, I'm getting it. I'm getting that that's one of my challenges, that those are one of my faults. And I need to work on that. And when you can accept that it's something you need to work on, that's when you start to let the voice in. Because that's why you're talking to yourself. Because you've actually become aware that you're not the perfect human. And that you are somebody that has to work on your own imperfections and, and your own feelings. And that's where I think that all comes in is that each evolution of what you learn about yourself, good or bad, is what you have to put in to start talking to yourself. Because then there's the, then there's the tangible, the tangible. You know what's right and wrong. You know what's good and bad. You know what feels bad and what feels good. And you have to take all those too and create a perspective. Cause again, it's not like we're not in that. What's that? What's that world where everybody's perfect in the same thing? And oh, like utopia. Right. Like we're not. And, and that's not who we're going to be. So you have to create a balance and find where that is. But at the end of the day, if you can look at yourself and look in the mirror and know that the person you are is a good person and you're really, the things that you do and the choices that you make and the decisions you make are for the good. And that's what you believe. Then that's all you can really ultimately do at the end of the day. Can you put some context to, to what you just said there? Like, do you have, is there an example that from yourself that you could kind of isolate in regards to, you know, the voices and then the opportunity to grow and then kind of opening yourself up to that? Like, is there a, an example that you could just, just provide some context because I think it was really actually an interesting point. You know, one simple example that I can go with is even, you know, when I was younger, 
how many people told me I was impatient. Like always just, you know, got to go do it, got to go do it now. And if you're not with me, you're kind of in the dust. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go do it. And then I'll let you know how it goes or, you know, all those things. And, and, and it was on what I felt to be my terms, where, where I thought it was the right pace. And I had a lot of people say, you know, and sometimes they would say your impatience comes across like, you know, you think I'm an idiot. You know, you're talking to me like, you know, that's what you know, and you know how to do it. But because I don't know how to do it at your pace, I'm dumb. It's like, oh my God. Okay. No, that's not how I want anybody to feel. Cause it's actually, it's not about you. It's about me. And I need to figure out where I went wrong. And, you know, where did that come across that I made somebody feel badly about their performance just because I was trying to achieve my own. So I think it starts there where you start to really look at it. So then when you're in situations and you're looking and you're dealing with somebody, you just have to constantly pull back and say, okay, am I handling this right? Am I being impatient? Am I talking to them? And is my tone right? Or is my tone off? Did my tone go off where I might be making somebody feel that they're not up to my expectation or my deliverable? Just constantly talking through that. And like I said, it's not always perfect because sometimes I go, oh, great. I did it. You know, I was, I was short and I shouldn't have been short. And that probably made them feel like crap. And you don't just let it go. If that's what you acknowledge and you're aware of, then you go back to that person and you say, you know, I understand that that's probably a certain way I just came across and I'm sorry. That's not what I meant. And yeah, let's, let's start again. <laughs> I would not have thought that with you. Like I, I mean, I was blown away when you said impatience was your uh, what I, Achilles heel or, or whatever the question I was that I asked you, but I just can't actually imagine somebody walking out of a meeting thinking that you, you know, thought they were an idiot because you're impatient and stuff like that. Like you're just, I hope to God it's not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, I didn't know you, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. I don't even know how long we've known each other for, but, but let's call it five years or whatever. Like I know you've known Tim Neal forever, but it's wild to me that that would have been your thing 20 years ago. Well, it's kind of funny. So, you know, you look at, uh, this is me going on a tangent here because I believe that in, in my heart of hearts, I believe that I probably suffer from a bit of ADD or ADHD. And I always have. I totally have. I, I, I really have. Like my head is all over the place. And if you want me to bear down and focus on one thing, especially for a long period of time, I am probably going to want to punch myself in the face. Like it's that intense for me. And so I think that that's where the level of impatience comes from. And so when I get there, I it's like a steamroller. Like, you know, when I was younger, I would just get on it and I would think that, I would know in my mind that I could do something and get it done well, and it was going to be done properly. So I was just going to go do it. And, and sometimes when you go on that process or you go on that path, you're not realizing who you might be steamrolling over a little. And, and that was where I had to really become aware. And, and hopefully that's not something I do today. And I hope for the most part, you know, the majority of the time people see I, I definitely think 100% of the time people know my intent and they know, oh, you know what? She didn't mean to come across that way. That's not her. But now. Yeah. But not before. Not before. Not before. I, I had to learn. I had to I so, just slow it. But how did you break it down? Because I, I mean, I think a lot of people deal with this. I think that you know, what I love about having you on the podcast is what you represent, how you hold yourself you know, accountable to your standards in life and in relationships. And it's, it's 
second to none. And I don't want to make this like Kim's the greatest person in the world type oh, thing. Oh, no, please do. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but I, it's great to hear and to see. And I think it's great for, and I think it's, I think it's great for all business people, but I also really think it's great for female business people, women who want to accelerate in whether it's, whether they own their own business or the, whether they work for a corporation. I mean, this is super important stuff for them to hear. Because, you know, they think they all have to be perfect and they, for, I think a lot of times we all forget about, you know, this is a long game. It's where are we going to end up in 20 years and 30 years, not where do we, you know, in the next six months. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this whole piece of you really, A, nobody wants to know their faults anymore. Like I get super concerned about that. But hearing somebody like you say, you know, I really had to cope and deal with this impatience thing what was the biggest struggle with it well i think it, at the end of the day it was affecting other people i didn't want to ever affect other people in a negative way i mean personally i could handle it i was fine with it it's like no i'm good like it's, i'm fucking efficient this way <laughs> no, I, i'm getting it done i'm good right <laughs> so it it wasn't about me it was about i do not want to look back on this, this world, this amazing life that I've had and think that I ever did anything that negatively impacted people because of my own inabilities or my own challenges. So, or being able to deal with those challenges. So I think I operate that way in many different things. I don't want to affect people's lives in a negative way. It's not my right to do that. And, and it should be nobody's right to do that. Like we're all here for whatever time we've been given and, and we deserve for it to be a really good time and, and a loving, you know, compassionate, caring time. I think sometimes there's tough decisions and there's tough roads that we hit along the way. It's not about being all, you know, fairy dust and, and whatever, but it's about just being true to yourself and being kind and compassionate and confident. Like, I, I think you can't be those things if you don't really know who you are. So you just have to know who you are and who you want to be and, and what you want to achieve at the end of the day. So, but how do you get confident? Like for you, where did that come from? So many people will, they think confidence is like a born trait and I think it's actually a learned skill. I'm curious, like, how do you get, how do you get, how does one get confident? How would you coach somebody to get confident? How did you get confident? Yeah, I, I definitely have insecurities, like lots of other people, like those exist. But I think for mine, what I can see where it came from was being true to who I am. If I had to question on a daily basis who I am or how I do things or how I make people feel, then I couldn't truly be confident with who I am. And, and I know, I know when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And I know that when we're going to deliver something, we're going to deliver it. And I know that people in my life, on whichever aspect or level it is, people in my life can trust me and they will always be able to trust me. And I know that that's a really hard thing to ask of people and it often needs to be earned, which is fine. I'm willing to do that. But I feel that confidence comes from knowing that what you're giving and what you're promising is exactly what you're doing. So like being, uh, being authentic Very. to who you really are. So trying to break this down, like if your core, whatever your core values are for you, it's like, I think you said trust delivering, like 
I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. There was a third one. Well, um, and, and things like loyalty. I'm extremely loyal and I get unbelievable loyalty back in my life from people. And I think it feeds itself. Sure it does. Right. And, and those kinds of things that you can create in your life to be the best person that you are, whatever that is, is what helps you create that level of confidence because you know, you're doing what you say you're going to do and you, you're, you're being who you say you're going to be. And at the end of the day, if you can follow those simple things that you create for yourself, you're going to feel very confident. So it, it doesn't mean you're perfect and it doesn't mean that you're the best person on earth and it doesn't mean that all those decisions are right, but it means you're standing behind it and that you have that conviction, which leads to at least feeling confident with who you are. Right. So, I mean, you, you know, you might have, your company might be struggling with building sales. It might be struggling with recruiting. It might be struggling with profit, whatever, or market share, whatever, you know, the business stuff. But as long as you're delivering on who you are as a person, at your core value, then you have confidence that that's where you win, lose, or draw. Yep. Is that that's win, what? lose, or draw? And be confident enough to know that you don't know everything. So, so in those situations, be confident enough to reach out and get the right people in there who who are smart in the ways that you need them to be to get those things delivered or sol- or resolved, and and pull it together. If you if you think you can do it all, I can promise you, you can't. So if you think you can, then that level of confidence might be verging on arrogance. So it's not the same thing. You need to find exactly who you are, where you are, what you're capable of, so that you can bring in really great people to do the things you can't do. Right. Yeah. You talked about like getting help and co- or maybe I put it in my own head, but coaching. Mm. Do, do you ever have a mentor or do you have coaches? Like what? I, I've never had coaches. Um, I would say that the first acquisition I entered in 2002, I, I strongly believed in the CEO. His name was Carrie, and he had tremendous visions, but he also had a tremendous heart. And so I really admired and, and cared about who he was as a person. But he taught me things. You know, there were things that he would teach me along the way. I remember when we were going through the acquisition afterwards, and he, he said to me, you know, Kim, what would happen if something happened to you? What would happen to the business? And I said, what do you mean what would happen to the business? Just run the business. And he said, but you have a lot of the knowledge and you also have all of the relationships at that time. And so he said, that's great because you're great and we know you're really good at what you do, but that's not great for our business and it's not great for everybody here and it wouldn't be great for forward-looking. So I think what we need to do is really have you focus on how can it not just be dependent on you and it needs to really be about everyone else in the organization too and and what their strengths can bring to it and not be so dependent. And for me, that was a really good learning because, you know, for so long, it's not that you want to sit there and pound your chest and how great you are, but but your successes make you feel really good about yourself and you don't want to lose that. But at the end of the day, it's not everything, especially when you're in an organization where a lot of other people are involved, because let's face it, you know, knock on wood, but something could happen to any one of us tomorrow, today. So you want to make sure that, A, you're leaving a legacy behind that's a strong one and a a good, solid one, but also one that's not going to be left in shambles, that people have to try and pick up pieces that they can't pick up. You deserve, as a business person, you deserve having a little bit of freedom from your business because it can it can take over your life. 
And, and, and most businesses start, you know, from a founder, Mm -hmm. an incubator who creates the business, kind of gets it going. It's a, you know, one or two person shop type of thing. And you're building the business and, and it is built off of your back, off of your decisions, off of your hard work, off of all these things. And then, you know, as it grows, there's this turning point to where, you know, the business needs to move on from its founder a little bit. Yeah. And I think what Carrie taught me at that time was don't, don't feed into the ego. Don't look at your ego right now. And, and whether it was just his philosophy or whether it was him knowing me and being a really great coach by tapping into what he knew would affect me enough to make that change. So he tapped into the people and how this would affect the people as opposed to whatever angle he could have taken. And, and he, it absolutely resonated with me. And, and I knew that that was, I needed to spread those shared successes across with everyone else because it meant the success of all individuals. Mm -hmm. So what is, I'm curious, what's next then for you? Like, where, where do you see yourself? Where, where, what are you going to do? What's the next evolution for Kim or for Phoenix or? It's a great question. And, and there should be some, you know, incredible five-year plan put together that would lay that all out, but I don't have it. Um, you know, I'm at the point of my life now where my youngest child is going off to university in September and, you know, it's my job is done as as a mom. So what does the next time frame look like? I don't have the answer yet. We are still um, flourishing with Phoenix through COVID. We obviously hit an incredibly tough time, but through that tough time, because we had pivoted and found other things that we could do and and how we offered our events and and successfully came out in a different light. We acquired, uh, we acquired over sixteen new corporate accounts in that time frame, and many of them have now switched to running their live events with us. So we now, in this first kind of full year post COVID, will have doubled our revenue uh, from what we were pre COVID. Wow! So it ended up being you know such a difficult time, but a massive success story for us because now our trajectory is, you know, at a higher growth percentage than we ever imagined it could be at, particularly without COVID, you know, let alone that situation. It's uh, it's a really strong time for us. So I think right now we're just putting those pieces together because now we have to make sure that we've always had a really great business of being able to run it on a scalable level. So now we have to be scalable and we have to make sure we have the right people in the right positions doing the right things. And we have to make sure that we create some life balance for people and we're working on that. And we have to ensure that our deliverables stay at the top level that they've always been, which they are, and and then figure out once the dust settles a little bit, do we want to look to possibly merge, be acquired, acquire another business and and you know, quadruple our revenue, or just stay who we are and and service the accounts with our our usual growth percentage moving forward. I don't have that answer right now, but I do know that what we are doing is managing what we've got, growing, making sure we have all the right people and still delivering exceptional experiences for people. So truly happy with that team. I was just thinking when you said, well, my job as a mom is done. I'm like, okay, well, not not that part. Wait for the first two months of university. You'll see. True. True. (laughs) It's never done. I have a 21 year old. It's, uh, it's not done. No, I think it gets harder. No, that's very true. I have a 20 year old. Yeah. There's no question. (laughs) It just changes. It goes down and you're very right. (laughs) That's funny. I mean, Kim, 
I wish you like all the success in the world. I think that, um, A, I hope you'll come back at some point. Absolutely. Uh, honestly, I just think, uh, I think the world of you, I think um, everything that you're doing and everything you have done, um, you're a role model for, certainly for women in business. I think you're a role model for any person in business. I've, I've learned so much from you. Uh, I've done, been doing this for 35 years. And I think I'm 35 years this year and you make it look way easier than I have. So like, it's like, it's unbelievable, you know, the evolution, the, your ability to be resourceful in times of crisis and, you know, just how you lead from the heart and your values. And it's really, really impressive. Um, you know, I, 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 it's just, it's amazing. So it honestly, for me all works because I've met people like you. And I feel very much the same way about you. And and I've been very fortunate with the people in my lives. My my success is only a result of all these close, amazing relationships and people that I have in my life. So thank you for saying that, but also thank you for being a part of it. Yeah. It's it's an honor to know you and it's been great hour and a half, I think we've been talking here. So wouldn't even know it. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing how fast it goes by. Thank you for coming. Please come back see what the next generation is for uh, Kim Naylor and Phoenix uh, event management. I look forward to it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Dwayne. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being with us. If you found value in the show and know a friend or a coworker who could benefit from the conversation, please share the link via text or on social media. Remember, each share creates a ripple effect of knowledge and inspiration. We'll see you next week. The views, information, or opinions expressed by guests during the Business of Doing Business podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Dwayne Kerrigan and his affiliates. Dwayne Kerrigan or the Business of Doing Business podcast is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. Listeners are advised to consult with a qualified professional or specialist before making any decisions based on the content of this podcast.